We are on uh, continuing in our series, The Rise of the Christian Church. We're going to be in Acts chapter 8, if you want to turn there, starting at verse 26. Uh, I have been blessed to uh, travel internationally uh, a little bit here, uh, most recently to Turkey, uh, where uh, I got to see some of the major cities that we find in the New Testament, where the gospel sort of had expanded outside of Jerusalem into some of the surrounding areas. Uh, And so I brought some pictures, of course. Here's one of them. This is uh, Laodicea, a beautiful place. Anybody want to go to Laodicea right now? Let's go. Uh, It was just lovely, Uh, an amazing city, very affluent in the day. Actually had two theaters, a morning theater and an evening theater, just, you know, make sure that the sun was right for the show. So this was Laodicea, and then kind of further on down through the Lycus Valley, a very fertile valley that was kind of the breadbasket of the region. Uh, This is, believe it or not, you kind of see those two smaller hills in the background there. You can see some people walking up on them if you squint really close. Uh, This is Colossae, uh, where the the letter to the Colossians was written, this very prominent letter, uh, this very tiny little village. And it basically was, again, a place of agriculture that sort of fed Laodicea and its affluence. And uh, then I also got to see um, the region of Galatia, which was sort of uninspiring. It was sort of the flatlands. Um, But also this is Ephesus, and this was probably the highlight uh, of the trip for me. So Main Street, Ephesus, looking down the road to the library there. And if you get to the library and hang a right, uh, that's where you find a great big amphitheater where the riot occurred, where they were chanting, great is Artemis, and the Apostle Paul was nearly killed. It was just really special to go to these places, you know, what we read in Scripture, and to set foot there and just know that uh, the foundations of our faith travel through some of these places. Very fascinating. I've also had a chance to travel to Ethiopia to kind of check on our child sponsorship. And Ethiopians are the most lovely people, so warm, hospitable, and gracious, uh, very expressive. I don't love food or their music too much. It's like their music is this different scale, which is weird to hear. And the food is filled with berberi, and it doesn't sit real well with me, a berberi pepper. And then there's, of course, the uh, raw meat dishes, also something I passed on. But um, while we were vid- uh, visiting Addis Ababa, which is the capital, one of the things that I noticed is that there's great affluence and great poverty and like no middle class. And the rich and the poor live right up against each other. It's almost striking to see it. Uh, So here you have in the foreground, uh, sort of bottom right corner, you see this little tin um, hut there. This is not a shed. That's a home. And you can see the very opulent home right behind it and others being built. And here's another example, maybe a little more dramatic. This is a home. And right adjacent to it are all of these condominiums that are being built. Rich and poor just kind of jammed together side by side. Uh, In the U.S., we kind of experience, we have neighborhoods that are generally speaking similar socioeconomic regions, but in Ethiopia, they're just sort of smashed together right alongside one another. Today in our passage, we're introduced to an Ethiopian man. Uh, He's not named for us. Uh, Actually, uh, Ethiopia, as it's referred to here in the text, would probably have been more like modern-day Sudan, or sort of South Egypt. 
And he has traveled 1,500 miles from that region to Jerusalem to worship. Uh, By all accounts, he's a wealthy businessman. And he's approached by Philip, who is prompted by the Holy Spirit to go and to share the gospel with this out-of-town worshiper. And I think with this encounter that we get between these two men, we are reminded of the truthfulness of the words that the angel proclaimed to the shepherds. The gospel is good news of great joy for all the people. So it wasn't a Christmas, uh, uh, but the truth that's announced by the angel there, the gospel is good news of great joy for all the people, is on full display right here. This man is not Jewish. He's not from Jerusalem. Uh, He is upper class, and he's of a different ethnicity. Is of good news, of great joy for all the people. So let's look at this together. Chapter 8, verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandaki, which means the queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home, he was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah, the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again. Philip, however, appeared as Atos and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. So the first thing I want to draw out of this sort of this encounter is just this picture that the mission of God is really a spirit-led thing. And yet, even in that, we are his ambassadors. Verse 26 begins with the words, the angel said, and that section sort of concludes in verse 29, and then the spirit told Philip. And so we see the spirit active and initiating and moving. This is a spirit-led thing. Amaze me, however, even as much as the spirit is involved in this, ordinary people like you and me to be his ambassadors for the gospel. There's no, there's no B plan for how the gospel gets out. It, it's on us. The Lord has left it to us. That's his strategy for reaching the lost world. Uh, there's one of the songs that we sing regularly at the church uh, by the band uh, Rend Collect. 
is called Build Your Kingdom Here. That's the title. And there's this line in that song that, to be honest with you, is hard for me to sing because it's almost not true. (laughs) And the line says this. It says, we are the hope on earth. And when I get to that line, I halt a little bit like, is that true? By the way, that's a question you should be asking in whatever we sing here, whatever you hear uh, on your radio, whatever music you're listening to. Is that true? And it's, it's tough because on the one hand, the hope of the lost is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet, if we're not faithful stewards of that, then they will not receive that hope. So this is a spirit-driven process but you and I are responsible to be carriers of the gospel for the unbelieving world. Uh, when I think about this, I, it kind of it catches me up short. It's like when you suddenly get this major responsibility in your life that you weren't prepared for. Like, let's say you've completed your teacher training. You're no longer a student teacher in the classroom. Now you're the teacher. You're supposed to know. You've got all these kids, and you're supposed to walk this thing out. Or you're a parent. You've just brought a new child home. Or you've been promoted, now you're the manager, you're the boss, and you've got to tell people what to do. And, and you kind of get to this point in your mind where you start thinking, who, who put me in charge around here? If I'm the one that's in charge, I think we're all... I've just been going along with others, and now I have to know what I'm doing? This is a little concerning. Uh, I remember when we first brought Aiden home from the hospital. New parents, you remember this feeling? You look, I'm looking at the... This is one of my strongest memories, by the way. My first child, we've just gotten home from the hospital, been home like two days, and he's got that bracelet on his ankle from the hospital. And I remember getting out my keychain, and I have a little leather micro uh, pair of scissors chain, and I remember just cutting off the little ankle bracelet on, on his foot there, and I just thought, well, we can't return him now, you know, <laughs> I cut the tags off, right? I don't have a receipt. And you just sort of overwhelmed with this feeling like, who let us leave the hospital with a live being? Like, we don't know what we're doing. I don't know what I'm doing. I'll do what Amy tells me, I guess. I don't know. But sometimes I feel that same way about our stewardship of the gospel. Who left us in charge of all these souls? We're a steward of the gospel. This is how God is going to redeem the world through us? It's a little startling. So, yes, we're recipients of the gospel. We're beneficiaries of the gospel, but we are also stewards of the gospel. We're the ones who carry it to a lost world or not. The Apostle Paul underscores this in 2 Corinthians 5.20. He says, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. We are in Thankfully, this is a spirit-driven process. We sort of do the possible things, but God does the miraculous things. We give the witness, but it is God through the Holy Spirit that draws people to a saving knowledge of himself. Conversion and regeneration are the work of God. We're sort of like the avatars. We're the physical mechanism he uses, but the personal power behind it is the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to tell you, and this hopefully doesn't come as a shock to you, I have never heard the voice of an angel audible. 
I've never heard the voice of the Holy Spirit audibly. But I have had my heart and my mind and my actions directed by the Holy Spirit in ways that I might not have otherwise chosen by myself. And I want to talk about that a little bit, sort of as to what that, what that looks like or how that ought to feel or how we ought to recognize that going on in our life. And the first thing I would say is sometimes it feels sort of like conscience. The strong urge to maybe stop something or say something or do something, but it can feel like a matter of conscience. Other times it can feel like a compulsion. We must go. We have to say. We have to do something. And it's kind of obvious that it doesn't originate from maybe within us, but it's something, someone, God, the Holy Spirit, is working upon us. Um, and, and, I, and I think we will always be aware when this is happening that it's consistent with the heart of God. And that is the control we have to keep an eye on. But I want to sort of needle us as a church on this a little bit. We're a conservative Baptist church. We hold in high regard the scriptures, its teaching, the doctrine, and sort of this um, objective truth that we find in the scriptures. And that is important, and may it ever be so. But also, the Spirit of God is alive and well in us. And the question I want to ask you is this. Do we live merely a biblical life, or do we also live a spiritual life? Is it just a biblical life? Is it just a knowledge life or a head life? Or does the Spirit of God animate us and move us to do what the Scriptures talk about? The two will work in concert. Uh, On display throughout the book of Acts is God the Holy Spirit acting upon the disciples to be his witnesses. This is the power that Jesus spoke of when he said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We use both the scripture we have and the spirit who animates us. I think a really good picture of this is sort of like a sailboat with the, the sail that's put up is sort of kind of what we do with the objective truth God has given us, but the Spirit blows and animates and empowers it. Um, so my encouragement to you this morning is if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have this power. The animating power of the Holy Spirit is within you. So the question becomes, do you have ears to hear the Spirit's voice? And secondly, and secondly, do you have feet that are willing to follow the Spirit's prompting? We have the power of the Spirit of God, but we have to listen and we have to respond in obedience. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 10, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all, and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one um, they have not believed in? And how can they believe in one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So I've pushed you into sort of listening to the voice of the Spirit as, as you follow the Lord and use this, this power to be his ambassadors. But let me give you also a couple cautions with this, okay? 
in terms of how do we recognize the Spirit's voice? Uh, The first thing is this, and this may be the most important. The Spirit of God will never ask you to do something that is contrary to the Scriptures. He will never ask you to do something contrary to the Scriptures. Uh, A man may come up and say, Pastor Eric, um, God told me that I'm to divorce my wife and go and marry this other woman whom I think is prettier down the street. And I can very easily say, no, he didn't. No, he didn't. God did not tell you to do that. Or um, how about this one? This was a real case not too very long ago. God told me to drown my kids in the bathtub. A woman did that, and that was her defense. God told me. And we can all look at that and go, no, he didn't, right? That's schizophrenia, something else. Or someone could say, God told me I should get a couple of cats. And we can say, not likely. (laughs) Probably not. God wouldn't do that to you. He loves you. (laughs) It's been a while. I got it every now and then. I got it. God will never tell us to do something contrary to the scripture. Secondly, the Spirit of God is always seeking to glorify Christ. That is what the Spirit is doing. He does not draw attention to himself, He does not draw attention to us. The Spirit of God seeks to glorify Christ. This is what. Uh, Jesus teaches in John 16, he will glorify, speaking of the Holy Spirit, he will glorify me. So the Holy Spirit of God is like a brilliant light that is always and ever shining, illuminating Christ. And that is what's on display here as well. So second point, the gospel is for every socioeconomic status. Um, Particularly, we're going to start here with the poor. I don't think this is any great challenge for us. We probably believe this. The gospel is for the poor. Uh, It's on display in the gospel of Luke. We know that uh, even Jesus, to be born to Mary and Joseph, they were a poor family. When they went to the temple to give the appropriate sacrifice, it was the sacrifice of the poor. Two doves or two pigeons. He was born in the city of Bethlehem. So as we kind of go through the Advent season, we, we highlight this. He was born in the city of Bethlehem, not Jerusalem, not the seat of power, kind of this out-of-the-way backwoods place. He was announced first to shepherds. Shepherds were, were not the most highly uh, revered people of the day. They had a very filthy job, which even rendered them ceremonially unclean for temple worship. Uh, I love what Pastor Mark said years ago. We would call them blue-collar workers, but we don't want to offend blue-collar workers. So there's sort of another rung down there somewhere. The gospel is also for the middle class. We see this early on in the book of Acts as as the gospel goes forward and the the church comes together in, in in and around Jerusalem. We're told that they meet every day in their homes. They break bread together. They share their possessions They sell land that they have in order to give to those who are in need. So they had something, right? They're sort of middle class. And in today's passage, and this may be an important corrective for our culture, we see also that the gospel is for the wealthy. See, in the first century, I think there was sort of this resistance, like, well, God is blessing those who are well-to-do, so it was a little shocking and a corrective to them to see that the gospel was for the poor. But I think in our day and age, we almost need a correction to the opposite side. We're so accustomed to saying the gospel is for the poor and the middle class that sometimes I think we can withhold the gospel from the successful. I think this passage is a good corrective for us. 
So this, this uh, Ethiopian man here, whoops, is an interesting figure. And it made me think of this, uh, Captain Jack Sparrow. We're told that he's a eunuch. So I thought, well, okay, Captain Jack gets to have his question for us this morning. And I'm sure you're sitting there and you're thinking, I really hope Pastor Eric goes in detail about what a eunuch is. I hope that happens. So wish granted, here we go. It can mean one of two things. Either one, a person is, sorry to say it, physically castrated, either voluntarily or involuntarily. This was done to prevent temptation, to give a person discipline and commitment, and to prevent distraction so that they could serve in a key place of service. Okay, that's one. Or two, it can mean a person who, uh, is, is, this is not physically uh, the case, but they practice a celibate lifestyle. They don't marry, uh, they abstain from sex, and they do so purposefully, to, again, to serve in a key position uh, of trust or a high commitment. And we might ask the question, why is this detail given to us here? Why does Dr. Luke tell us this very personal bit of information? This feels like a HIPAA violation, right? I think um, whether there is an actual physical alteration or whether this is just a voluntary commitment by this individual This speaks to his character. What we know about him is he is a highly committed person. This this is a person who is, for one reason or another, committed to a life of celibacy and commitment to his position of service. This is an individual who drove 1,500 miles to worship. Those of you who came in from North Pole today thinking pretty good about yourselves, what'd you do, 30 miles? Try 1,500 This is the kind of person who, after worship, obtains a very expensive and hard-to-get scroll of Isaiah and is reading it on the way home, continuing to study. This is the kind of person who, at home, has been made the CFO or the lead accountant on the Queen's Treasury, so high as their level of skill and trust. This is the kind of person whose hard work and discipline has him rolling in a coach In fact, the word here is chariot, but it's probably more like um, a carriage because he's not driving it. He's riding in it. He has a driver and very likely an entourage around him, okay? He's basically, and this again, this is not like a Roman centurion driving like the company vehicle, like a Humvee of the day, right? This is is basically uh, a high-ranking brother from Ethiopia in the company jet, So if we want to bring this all the way forward into uh, a visual for today, here you go. It's this guy. This is who we're talking about. A very high-powered executive, CEO, CFO, well-to-do, disciplined, out of town, in a pretty nice ride. This is who is in view here. And I think this is one of the things this reminds us, the gospel is for the successful too. It's also for the wealthy. When we go through Advent, we kind of focus on, you know, Bethlehem and the shepherds and the lowly, and certainly the gospel is for those people too, but don't let it neglect that it's for all people. It is good news of great joy for all the people. Okay, moving on. The gospel was for every spiritual condition. We saw, first of all, that it was for the religious. Uh, We think of sort of the pious Jews in and around Jerusalem, 
Now, the experts in the law were constantly being confronted by the gospel message. And eventually we were told in Acts that a great number of priests became obedient to the faith, right? So some did, and yet some continued to resist. Uh, they did not recognize Jesus. They killed Jesus, and they continued to oppose the disciples as they shared the gospel. In fact, this is a point that both Peter and Stephen boldly confront in their messages early on, right? You killed the author of life. You stiff-necked people. You always resist the Holy Spirit. And one of the things this shows us as the gospel is being uh, presented to the religious in Jerusalem is that we can be as lost in religion as we can be in our rebellion. Some of the most desperately lost people on earth are the religious who have been inoculated against the grace of God by a kind of do-it-yourself spirituality based on their own performance. I wonder how many nominal Christians are there who have a false sense of security because they've been in and around religious groups, grown up in and around the church, grown up in and around religious parents and grandparents. A good friend of mine reminded me last week that God does not have any grandchildren. He has children, those who related directly to him, but you don't get into the kingdom of God secondhand. The gospel is for the religious. They need to hear it. The gospel is for the atheist. This one might be a stretch, but we saw this with Simon the sorcerer a few weeks ago, right? A man of some kind of power, and I'll tell you, there's only two powers out there. There's the power of God, and there's power of the evil one, and there's real power there too, although it pales in comparison to the power of God. And when Simon the sorcerer saw this, he was convinced, and I believe became a genuine Christian, a Christ follower. But I think about how many once upon a time atheists set out to disprove Christianity and yet in their research ended up coming to faith themselves, right? C.S. Lewis, Josh McDowell, Alistair McGrath, Lee Strobel, another man by the name of Anthony Flew was an avowed atheist, moved from atheism to theism, but died before becoming a real Christian, and I think he is a cautionary tale for us. So the gospel is for the religious. The gospel is for the atheist. The gospel is also for the curious. And here, I think the Ethiopian man, this businessman, is a good example for us. And what we see happening is actually the gospel expanding just as Jesus said it would. From Jerusalem, then to Judea and Samaria, and now this man who is from Ethiopia, the first Gentile convert now to literally the ends of the earth, or of the known world at the time. Uh, so let's see how this goes down. Verse 30. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is this prophet talking about himself or someone else? And the Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. 
So there's a couple practical things I want to highlight here that I think we can learn from this encounter uh, between Philip and uh, the eunuch here. The first is this. Philip is listening to the Holy Spirit. He heard the Holy Spirit prompt him to go, and he went in obedience. And I think probably, especially for those of us who are in the conservative Baptist church kind of churches, this is something we need to grow in is our ability to listen to the Spirit, who, by the way, didn't retire at the end of Acts, is alive and well. Okay? And we need to learn to listen to the Spirit of God. Secondly, I think, wonderfully, we see the value of Scripture being used in gospel witness. And that is something we should do as we're sharing the gospel with others, as we're having gospel conversations. By all means, use the Scriptures. They're powerful. Kind of nice here that the Ethiopian man has already got them open and engaging, so that's kind of a nice soft one right across the middle of the plate there. Thirdly, and here's a challenge for you. In fact, you might even turn this into a game in your own family or friends with your friends. You should be able to get to Jesus and the gospel from any passage of Scripture in the Bible. Can you do that? That's a skill to develop and to cultivate. Uh, this, is, this is something that I've tried to uh, preach to you many times throughout the years. Uh, this is a quote by Edmund Clowney in his book I've listed in your notes. But he has said this, The Bible is the greatest storybook, not because it's full of wonderful stories, but because it tells one great story, the story of Jesus. All of the law and the prophets leading up to Jesus are meant for us to see him. They point to him. We should be able to be given virtually any passage of the scripture and be able to show how it connects to the plot point of Jesus. Tim Keller uh, has a great quote, or sort of uh, he expounds on, on uh, Clowney's comment here when he says this, if we ever tell a particular Bible story without putting it into the Bible's story about Christ, we actually change its meaning for us. It becomes a moralistic exhortation to try harder rather than to call, uh, call to live by faith in the work of Christ. Oh, that was really interesting. So turn that into a game in your home. Ask your kids. You're reading an Old Testament passage of Scripture. Okay, how is that passage connected to Christ? How does that prepare us to Jesus? If we would get good at that, man, I think we would have so many more gospel opportunities. All right, fourthly here. Gospel reception is marked by believers' baptism. Marked by believers' baptism. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. Okay, I just want to draw out a couple points about baptism. Hopefully you know this, because this is a Baptist church, so hopefully this is sort of into you. But first of all, baptism is a symbol. It is a symbol. Uh, when we talk to uh, folks who are coming forward for believer's baptism, I often use the wedding ring on my finger as an example to teach from. This is a symbol that I'm married, that I've made a covenant to Amy, to God and to my wife, and I made, so, made it in front of others. It doesn't marry me. I don't put it on and become married. I, if I can get it off, <laughs> I can take it off. It's not that I'm unmarried now. It's a symbol of a covenant made. 
And baptism is the same way. It's like the wedding ring that symbolizes the covenant that we are in with the Lord, of something that has already taken place. It does not save us. There is no means of salvation that occurs there. You can go through life and not be baptized and find yourself in heaven. I think it's still something we are to do. It's something Jesus instructed. It's something that is modeled for us, but it doesn't save us. Baptism is primarily a public identification with Christ. And the beautiful symbol is, of course, as we identify with Christ in his death, one is lowered down. And the water symbolizes the cleansing that has already taken place. And the coming up out of the water is a picture of raising to new life, new spiritual life. And I think it's so interesting that Jesus basically left two ordinances for us, two lasting ordinances. He left the Lord's Supper and he left baptism. And both of them are reenactments of the gospel. I think it goes to show us how Often, we need to be reminded that it is in Christ alone that we stand with the Lord. It is not in our effort and not in our performance, not in our works, but in the finished work of Jesus Christ. So let me sort of bring this to a conclusion here. How do we respond to this? How do we then live? Uh, What does this passage have to tell us? First of all, for some of you, you need to receive the gospel, just as this Ethiopian man did. Very accomplished man, successful, wealthy, well-regarded, key position of trust, religious even. But he needed the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he understood that from Philip's preaching. Or secondly, maybe you've already crossed the line of faith, and for you, the next step maybe is to come forward in believer's baptism and to publicly identify with Christ. We're going to have a baptism in a few weeks And as you see it in the bulletin, you can sign up for that. We'll talk about that. But maybe that's what's next for you. I love the Ethiopian's question. What is to stop me from being baptized? I'll put it in your life. What is to stop you from being baptized? I can challenge you. Thirdly, uh, Philip, I think, is a great example that we are stewards of the gospel, ambassadors for Christ. And we need to make sure that we're carrying this gospel message to all. The last thing I want to do is to ask you a question just to kind of needle you in your own heart. I love um, Gregory Kokel has this great statement about, let me, put a, let me put a stone in your shoe. Let me ask a question that like a rock in your shoe will sit there and fester in your life a little bit, okay? Here's the question. Is there anybody that you, any person or any people group, that you tend to overlook with the gospel? You just sort of conveniently don't get to them. You omit them. Maybe it's the wealthy. You think, oh, they seem pretty well-to-do and well-off. What, what does the gospel have to say to them? And you kind of ignore them with it. Or maybe it's the out-of-work, just the opposite. You think they're not doing anything. What are they going to do with the gospel? Or maybe it's the homosexual. You just have a certain ick factor in your life and you don't want to be around them. And so you're not. And so you don't ever take the gospel to them. Uh, Maybe it's someone of a different political persuasion. Someone of a different ethnicity. Or your friends, that's too risky. Or family members, you've shared the gospel once, don't want to go back there again. I think throughout the book of Acts, we see how the gospel is good news of great joy for everyone. For pious Jews, for priests, 
for the invalid, for prison guards, Samaritans, sorcerers, and now wealthy foreign CEOs. The gospel is good news of great joy for everybody. Let me pray. Lord, we remind ourselves of who we were before the gospel became operative in our life. We were absolute sinners, dead in our trespasses and sin, separated from you, hostile to you, and headed to judgment. And yet by your grace and mercy, someone came along and shared with us the glorious gospel that is good news, that has become good news for us in our personal lives. And Lord, I pray that we would not become hoarders of this good thing, but that we would truly be your ambassadors as though Christ were making his appeal through us. May we go to those around us, everyone around us, and say, we implore you to be reconciled to God. The gospel is good news of great joy for all people. And may our lives reflect that we know that truth. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.